come to you now as we turn to the Word of God. We need your help. We can't do this on our own. We know that you supply the Spirit, whoever lives within us, to help us understand the Word of God. Help us to believe it. It helps us to change, Lord. We all need to be continually changing into the image of Jesus Christ, Lord. It's not sufficient to stay where we're at, Lord. And so we pray this morning as we break forth your word that your spirit will take it, pierce our hearts, cause us to be more like your son, Lord. Cause us to settle things that are wrong in our life, that are sinful, to come to you and, and repent, Lord, and change direction. Lord, you're a kind God. Your grace is so fresh and new each day for us. You're so kind to us. You've loved us and saved us. Let us be more like you through this message. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Spurgeon said this. He said, None are more unjust in their judgments of others than those who have a high opinion of themselves. Let me read that again. None are more unjust in their judgments of others than those who have a high opinion of themselves. Well, if you ever worked with somebody where you maybe had to go to them to approach maybe an issue in their life, maybe a sinful issue that, you, that you're trying to help them correct that, and maybe they flew back at you, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, which says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Have you ever had that done? I, I don't know how many times, oh, you're judging me, you know, so forth. And we, we hear that, right? And and of course, Jesus in this great passage on the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest, probably the greatest message by the greatest preacher ever preached, was dealing with a very judgmental re, uh, religious group that had full control over the nation of Israel. And they were the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and the Sanhedrin. And he is in that sermon really directing his teaching towards them in a lot of ways. He's reminding them that if they judge, they will be judged. And so often that gets pulled out of context and used against us. But how do we judge, right? We have to discern sin, right? If someone I love is in sin, and I have to make a judgment there, don't I? Don't, and, and how do I make that judgment? Well, again, of course, according to the Word of God, I study my Bible, I repent, I make sure I'm right with God, and then I address that issue with that loved one or that person because I have to make a judgment, don't I? If you see your brother in sin, what are you to do? You're to go to him. You're to go to him. Your brother or sister in the Lord, you're there to reach out to them. So church discipline hangs upon some kind of judgment, right? We have to make a judgment. But it's the Bible that helps us understand those things. So, so many people often really try to use that don't judge me type of thing. And unfortunately, they even use it in the church. But the Bible tells us very clearly that we're to judge in the church. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, we'll see this in the weeks to come. Here, Paul is dealing with a very horrible, immoral situation in, in the um, church, and he's dressing them to deal with it because they have not. And he says this, chapter 5, verse 12, he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? So the Apostle Paul comes right out the bat, What do I have to do with that judging the world? You know, I think Christians are really wound up way too far in judging the world right now. My opinion but I want you to think about it. We're caught up in politics and vaccinations and all kinds of stuff. We are way over the top in our judgment of the world. Paul says, what do I have to do with that? I don't have anything to do with the judge of the world. There's one coming who's going to judge the world perfectly. But then he makes this statement. He says, do not judge 
the, uh, excuse me, do you not judge, he says in a negative tone, reversing the order, do you not judge, listen to this, those who are within the church? Yes, we do. We do. But we do it through the gospel. We do it with a kindness and a love. Unfortunately, sometimes that gets abused. Somebody sees somebody, they think it's their job to go correct them and be their Holy Spirit. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Our job is to correctly articulate the word of God, make sure it filters through our own heart, our own minds, as we approach somebody who needs some examination, maybe, of where their life is. And our goal is to bring them back into right fellowship with the Lord. As we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we come upon the Apostle Paul trying to straighten out a very difficult problem within Corinth. This church who has struggled is judging Paul. And not only Paul, but the other rest of the apostles and the leaderships are there. They have now, they have now voiced their opinions of what they think about him. And he's going to show who he really belongs to and what his role is within that community of believers. It's interesting, at the end of chapter 3, you would think as you read this, as I finished this last week, uh, two weeks ago, it said, all things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. You would think, well, let's just end it there. That's a great statement, you know? You belong to God, Christ belongs to to God, let's just, let's go home. (laughs) But because, because the church had become so stubborn, who had let the wisdom of the world penetrate their thoughts and desires and and what they want it to be like, they had issue upon issue upon issue. And one of them is they rejected their leadership. And Paul wants to deal with this. He knows that they they have an improper biblical understanding of the gospel and of the church. They, they don't understand ecclesiology, the doctrine of church, the way God had set up the leadership structure and the body of Christ and how it was to function because they had failed to discern the gospel correctly. And when the gospel is distorted by cleverness of speech, right, which they were dealing with with these, these great orators of the day, when they let worldly wisdom, worldly thinking come in, they will view God's servants poorly. They'll judge them not at a biblical standard, they'll judge them according to a worldly standard. So Paul's dealing with this. And he knows that this church is full of corruption and their view of their leadership, his, his leadership and the others has now been poorly judged. And, 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 and we see this because they're, they're lining up in factions under Paul and Apollos and Peter. And some probably aren't lining up at all under them. So Paul is now going to rebuke them. And try to bring them back to the gospel that leads to the return of Christ. He's going to keep bringing this church back. In verses 1 through 5, we see Paul make a change. He's been using a farm illustration. Planting and watering and staying in your row and and serving God there. And then he used a temple illustration that our bodies, our lives are the temple of God that he fills. You remember this in end of chapter 3. But now he turns to the example of a household, particularly a master who owns that household and is granted stewardship to somebody to take care of it. And this is the theme which Paul is going to use to correct the false view that the Corinthians have come up with. He's correcting it gently because he wants them to have joy. He wants them to anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so 
He causes them, he, he, takes from the, he takes the word of God, moved along by the spirit of God, and now teaches them why he does what he does. Let's look at five, four, excuse me, four shot, uh, thoughts this morning as we un, unpack this text. Number one. A gospel grip servant who faithfully manages his master's household, well, this, this is important, as he anticipates his return. A gospel grip servant who faithfully manages his master's household as he anticipates his return. Paul is attempting here to set in order a correct view of leadership. Before he deals with their judgmental um, uh, premature judgmental problem they're having, he's first going to set in order who he is, who he's accountable to, and what, why he's sent to do what he's done. Now, notice in the verse 1, the into the plurals that are here. Let a man regard us, plural, in this manner, as servants, plural, of Christ, and stewards, plural, of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of steward, stewards, plural, that one be found trustworthy. Well, the plurals are important because Paul's not only setting the record straight of what God has done with him, he's setting the record straight with the other men. The other men that would be looked at as elders in that church that would probably include Apollos and others that came along with him. And there he wants to show them these men are both servants and stewards of God's household. In verses 3 through 5, he's going to move away from the plurals and he's going to talk about himself personally. In his relationship to God, in his relationship to them, we'll see these in these five verses this morning. Now, the Apostle Paul describes himself and his fellow laborers with two distinct, distinct descriptions here. Look at the first one. Look at verse 1. He calls himself a servant of Christ. Let, let a man regard us in this manner first. Number one, a servant of Christ. Now, servant is an interesting word, isn't it? Uh, today, servant or slave, it could be translated slave of Christ, some of the translations have that, is not a very well-liked term today, right? I mean, in today's climate, these terms are, are just, people would gasp at it, right? But yet the Bible is full of slavery, isn't it? Slavery is a result of sin. We see that all through the Old Testament. Man's enslaving one another. Terrible things go on in the Old Testament to just show how bad man is and how much they need a Savior. But yet, I want you to go a little further with me. The New Testament uses the term slavery and servant way more. And guess who it uses it of? Us. <laughs> we are now slaves of Christ. Slaves of righteousness. Servants of the Most High. It's a term given to us of our position once saved and how we serve in the household of God as his servants, as his slaves. Now, the world gets a hold of this. They're never going to understand that. They tune into that right now. They would go, oh, these guys are, wow, I can't even use the word they are down there. They're talking about slaves and servants. I thought we got over that. Oh, no. I'm gladly, I will declare it publicly, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He bought me. He purchased me. He owns me. And my life is his. And so Paul, right off the bat, reminds them that, look, I'm a servant of Christ. Now, now interesting enough, he changes words. In chapter 3, verse 5, there he talks about the servanthood. He says, servant through whom you believe. He talks about, well, what is Paulos and what is Paul? They're servants, right? Well, there he uses the term, a different word, that speaks of the nature of their work. But now he chooses 
a little bit different word to try to help them understand. And again, in their language, as these words are used, they had meanings to them, strong meanings to them. And so when he uses a new word here, he's speaking about how someone handles the affairs of someone else's. I'm a servant of Christ. I'm handling his affairs. It's interesting, the second, another way I found it used, and it was actually a non-biblical material, we find this word used for what we call a galley rower. It would be someone on the bottom of the ship who was down in the hole, and he would be chained to the oar, and there he would be pulling on that oar. But he would only pull with a stroke call out by the captain. So the captain call out stroke, they pulled. So this word was used to them as well. So they stayed, they stayed in pattern. They stayed in sync with the captain of the ship as they pulled. It's an interesting word, isn't it? So Paul says this is what we are. We are servants of God. We are down in the depths of the boat pulling hard for Jesus. Isn't that a great word? I love it. You can call me a servant of Jesus. I don't mind. I won't be offended. I won't sue you. I'll, I'll, I'll accept that. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love it that God has given me eight other men, particularly when he's talking about leadership, eldership, that we pull together. And it's fun in our elder meetings as, as though there, there, there's also difficult things that go on. But you get this sense that there's these nine men together, chained together, hooked to, to the oar, pulling on the, the oars for Christ. That's our goal. We're not there for self-gratification. Um, there's probably a lot of other things that could be a lot easier to do than what we do. Um, but we're happy and we're, we're together and we're pulling on the oars as the Lord Jesus calls out the stroke. Notice the next term that he brings here to really balance things out. He calls himself a steward, a steward of the mysteries of Christ. That's what he sees himself and Apollos and the other leaders as this. And here we have the understanding of the idea of oversight of an estate. It's managing someone else's stuff. So they really go well together in a lot of ways, these two terms that the Spirit led Paul to use. He's managing someone else's stuff and not with strict oversight. It's the idea, the stewardship is God, somebody has placed you in charge of their stuff, but they're not looking over your shoulder. They're trusting you to take care of their stuff. I experienced this as, um, in our early ministry as we had our tent-making job of ranching and farming. Um, often I would manage cattle of somebody else's. And many times, I, I often didn't even meet face-to-face -face some of these people. There would be a connection through emails or phone calls, and, and they would ask me to manage their herd that was coming up on such such place, and I would accept that, and I would take care of that herd. And I was there to receive that, and the trucks would roll in. Their cattle, which is their livelihood, is coming off those trucks. I'm caring for those, but actually, I'm working for them. And everything I did would be accountable back to them. Now, they weren't there. They trusted me with their income, their livestock that were there. My goal was to make them fat and happy and healthy and send them back at the end of the season to them because I was working for them. That's the idea here. Paul saw that. His goal was not that he was there as some kind of puppet or some figure for the Corinth church. He's working for the master. And he wants that clear. And you can clearly see that as you study this and understand that there's this delegated authority Paul understands he has. And the apostles clarifying that they're humble servants of Christ. They belong to him alone. But at the same time, there's this, there's this emphasis that they have a trusted position and their accountability is to God. I remember as we were going through our eldership process, 
dear brother came up and said, well, if the church is not congregational rule, if it's, if it's elder-led, where's the accountability? I said, well, there's certainly accountability between us and the church, but let me say this. Can you get higher accountability of God? <laughs> That's who we answer to. We answer to the King of Kings, Christ, who's head of the church. And if you don't, if you don't do it his way, he has a way of removing you. We're, we're directly accountable to him. Paul knew that. He knew that Christ was the master of the household. And everything he did was to please the master, to do things his way. See, the master left the master guide. It was not a hidden guide. He knew the master left what was, how it was supposed to be done and what was to be done. And so Paul believed that. And he stuck to this. Well, Jesus Christ is such a great example, isn't he? When Jesus Christ comes... Mark, as he's recording his gospel, says this about Jesus Christ. He said, now after John had been taken custody, this is Mark 1.14, listen to this, Jesus came into Galilee, and listen to what he did, preaching the gospel of God. He came preaching the gospel of God. I love that statement. Paul uses this, we'll see this in a moment, the statement of the gospel of God. Jesus Christ, when he stepped out of heaven, submitted to the will of his Father. I'm coming to do your will. We hear him over and over. I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. I came to do your will, Father. Not my will be done even the night before his death, but your will be done. He was the greatest example of serving the Father. And so Jesus does that. He came preaching the gospel of God. He didn't say, I'm preaching the gospel of myself. Well, in a sense, he was, right? Because he is the, the centerpiece to the gospel. But he preached the gospel of God. Listen how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 7. I preach the gospel of God to you without charge. <laughs> now that's an interesting statement. This is, a, this is probably the most wealthy church in the chain of churches that he's involved with. A lot of the other churches, the Philippi's and Ephesus and so forth, they were middle, uh, blue-collared, if best type churches, not Corinth. Corinth was wealthy, and they gave the least. Isn't that interesting? So when Paul comes, he doesn't charge them. He provides his own living. But his goal was to preach the gospel of God. That's what he was sent to do. He wasn't doing it to get money from them or any other reasons. But I think he says this because he's really saying, I don't work for you. <laughs> I think he's doing it very kindly and humbly and without pride. But he says, I'm not, I'm not working for you. I'm a servant of the Most High. I've been given authority to proclaim his gospel and his gospel alone. That's what I do. I'm not here to preach my own gospel. I'm here to preach the gospel of God. So Paul understood this. Notice in verse 1, see the, the emphasis of authority. Because uh, the Bible says Paul um, was entrusted with the stewardship of the mystery of God. Well, what's that? Well, that's the gospel. That's the gospel revealed down through the ages, right? That's the gospel of Genesis chapter 3, where God promises to crush the head of the serpent and to bring one who will bring his chosen back into redemption, back into a family with him. Those promises are lined up all through Scripture. He tells Abraham in, in Genesis 12, verse 3, that there's one coming to seed that's going to unite the nations. He's going to unite all people from every walk, and they'll be joyful and glad within him. He's the, it's the seed of Isaiah 53, the lamb that was slain for us, this is the mystery of the gospel. This is what Paul's preaching. This is a glorious thing. This is my job. <laughs> when I look at this, I go, I get excited about this. God has called me 
to proclaim the gospel. Now, he sent me to Riverbend to do it. But that's my job, to proclaim the gospel, to stay on that. Do not, do not veer, do not leave that lane. Stay in that, because it's the greatest thing that can ever be told. I could come up here and tickle your ears and tell you stories and, and uh, make you feel good and pressure you to give a little more. Uh, I could do all that. I probably have enough giftedness within me that I could really persuade you to do some things. We see it all the time. People follow leaders all the way to death sometimes, right? Jim Jones. But that's not what God sent me to do. In fact, that would be a terrible ending for me, personally. But God sent me to preach the mysteries of the gospel. The glorious fact that he takes sinners who deserve nothing but the wages that they deserve, to the eternal damnation of hell, the judgment upon God on them forever that never goes out and worms that don't die. It is him, it's me, you, who God chose to save. That's the glorious mystery of the gospel. And Paul says, I've come to do that. You want somebody who fits the suit. You want the great orator. You want the one who can philosophize. <laughs> right? He's already dealt with that in chapter 2. He says, I'm not there for that. I'm a steward. I've been given something very precious that belongs to my master. And I'm to care for that. And I'm to proclaim what he sent me to do, not what you want me to do. You can see such strong emphasis in here. I think a lot of this is because he's contrasting their views. In chapter 2, verse 7, he's been talking about their worldly wisdom, right? In verse 6, he talks about that he has a wisdom. He speaks a wisdom, but not of this age of the rulers. Verse 7, but we speak God's wisdom. Then he says, a mystery. Yeah, they're speaking some kind of wisdom. It's worldly wisdom. It actually takes you nowhere and actually may, in fact, lead you to hell. But I'm here to speak the wisdom of God, Paul says. That's my job. So for sure, the mysteries of God refer to the revelation of the gospel. Hmm. Paul's riding on his little steed, heading for Damascus, thinking he's self-righteous, going to put all these bad Christians the way to into jail, maybe get rid of some of them permanently. And he's on his way, and bam, he meets Jesus Christ. What an encounter. The man is eternally changed, just like all of us who got saved. But God puts him into the service, the servanthood, the stewardship of the gospel. And it's going to cost him dearly. He'll be stoned, snake bit, left in the deep, abandoned by others. I mean, he goes through so much because he is so, so set on proclaiming the mysteries of the gospel. This is what God's called him to do. And not stones or people or hatred or anything else will stop him from doing that. This is what Paul has called him to do. Verse 2, look at this with me. In this case, moreover, it's required of a steward that one be found trustworthy. One be found trustworthy. Well, there's a little complex set of adverbs that open this sentence up. It may be translated in your Bible in this case or moreover or in this regard, but those are all good translation. But the idea here, when you, when you work through it, it took me a little while to quite get my mind around those, those Greek adverbs there, but it's the idea of what is to be sought out, Paul says. What's to be required of a steward is faithfulness, trustworthiness. That's what's required. He wants to set it out right there. There's nothing else. There's, I'm not here to tickle your ears. I'm not here to mix worldly philosophies. I'm not here for anything. The first thing I want you to understand, I'm here to be a faithful 
servant of Jesus Christ. That's my job. That's how I want God to find me. I want him to find me faithful. This word trustworthy or faithful, depending on what translation you have, is an important word, isn't it? It literally means uh, that you are worthy of the trust of that which was placed in your care. We hear about a trustee of, a, of a, an estate. Somebody chose somebody that they felt was worthy to handle their affairs, their estate, after their past. It's, it's quite an honor. It should be. Sometimes it gets given to the wrong person, I hear, but we won't go there. But Paul looks at it the same way. He goes, look, God has entrusted me. He's put you, Corinth Church, he's put the gospel in my care. Now, notice that it doesn't highlight eloquence. And while you're doing it, be very eloquent. And wear skinny jeans. And say the right things. Nothing wrong with skinny jeans. I don't want to offend anybody here. It doesn't say to be persuasive. Now, I, I, I don't know if I'm persuasive or I'm just really happy. I love doing what I do. I love studying God's Word. I love telling you about my Savior Sunday after Sunday. But it doesn't tell me. It tells me to be faithful with this gift that's given. It doesn't say to focus in on human wisdom. So I have to, I, every once in a while, we stand in this pulpit and say, hey, brothers and sisters, you're getting a little too caught up in the political world. Hey, we're reminded, this ain't our home. <laughs> we're just passing through. Yeah, it's going to get a little bumpy here if the Lord doesn't come soon, but this isn't our home. And so there are times where we reject worldly wisdom and all the fighting over this and that and have you had this and have you not had this and so forth, right? It doesn't highlight success either. When you look at that verse, verse 2, it doesn't say anything about success. It's required of the stewards that they to be found trustworthy. You know why? Because God never asked me to build his church. Do you understand that? Pastors are not charged to build the church. That belongs to Jesus Christ, the head of the church. He charged us to be trustworthy, faithful stewards of the word of God. And so we let him have it. And if he wants our church 100 or 1,000 or, or three on a Sunday, I, that's his job. He builds it. It's just like life and death, isn't it? That's why we can trust the Lord during COVIDs and, and sicknesses and cancer and all these different things because Christ has our days numbered. We, we can't, that's not our job, right? It's not my job to outlive what God ordained for me, Right? Think about how silly that is. They only gave me 70. I'm going for 72. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> no, no. Those things belong to God. And so look at that passage. It's required of the steward, the one who has been entrusted with the things of God, that that one be found trustworthy. Trustworthy. It's a mark of an elder. Is he trustworthy? And you trust him. Has he handled the gospel correctly? Has he handled God's flock correctly? This is what God is after. This is what he requires. This is what he calls each and every us to do. Jesus speaks about these terms all the time. Matthew 24, 45 through 46. Who then is the faithful, sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at proper time? We'll stop right there. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave? There's that word. The world hates it right now, but there it is. Who is it? Who is it that the master has put in charge of his house? 
to give them their food at a proper time. Whoa, what a shot there. What are you doing with my word, slave? Are you feeding properly? Pastor Melvin was expressing, I, I, I heard both services, I can't remember which one you said this more clearly, and, but there are so much problems in places like her. Uh, uh, um, where are you at? Honduras, sorry, my mind went blank. I was thinking of Afghanistan. I know you're not there. Uh, um, and so when you look at the world there, and what he said, one of the problems is they, they all know about God. They know there's even a Jesus. But their doctrine is so poor, it's so man-centered that they're never fed. And so he's, he's got a church down there that has the bread of life ready to give it to people. And everybody around there um, that is maybe going somewhere else, many of those people are literally spiritually starving to death when the bread of life is right there. Now, we understand that God has to save and do that work, but look, who's got charge of the household of God, Jesus says? Who's feeding at the proper time? Verse 46, blessed is that slave whom his master finds doing, so doing when he comes. Boy, the Lord's showing up one of these days. Do you know that? You know, you know he's coming back. Do you still believe that? Because as I study Corinthians, he keeps reminding of, a, of this eschatological ending of the church. It's all going to come to end. Christ is going to return, and that's why we live the way we live. Do you live for the Lord Jesus? So the idea of a steward is one who is trustworthy, faithful, gives, gives the understanding of the one who the master of the house has entrusted. It's, he's entrusted these things to. Dads, he's entrusted you with a wife and children. Moms, he's entrusted you with a father and a husband. Singles, he's entrusted you with a gift of singleness. That you'd handle that correctly. He's entrusted us with things that he wants us to take care of. And when we bring them back, he wants to reward us. It's an interesting thing, though. He doesn't watch over our shoulder like we would think, like an angry owner does. I, I thought of Joseph when I was looking at this definition when Joseph gets sold to Potiphar's home, you remember this, Potiphar gives him everything. In fact, you remember the text. The text says that Joseph was given full run over everything except his wife. And, and Potiphar went on to say that everything he did, he had no knowledge of what he was doing. He was running the house so well, he didn't care. See, that's a steward. And of course, even a steward like that can be falsely accused, as we know. Second thought. A greater examination is coming than the court of human opinion or fallen human opinion. A greater examination is coming than the court of fallen human opinion. Um, verse 3 says this, but to me it is a very little thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court, in fact. Excuse me. In fact, I do not examine myself. Now, after clarifying himself as a servant leader who's accountable to the master alone, Paul now applies those truths to the prideful Corinthians as they cast this premature judgment upon him. Now, the key word in here is this word anacrino. Crino is the word we get for judge, but here we have a, a prefix on it, ana, that helps us understand that this is more the idea of a process of examination. And so I think NASB got it probably translated the best, saying, it's examined. He said, um, it's a very small thing that I may be examined. I think many translations say judged. Judge is handing down a verdict. 
But, but here the idea of this word with this prefix on it gives the idea of a process of examination. The Corinthians are examining Paul. They're, they're, they're in this process of being critical to him. And, and, they, and they pass this premature judgment upon him. But notice what he says in verse 3. But to me, it's a very small thing. Now, Paul's not being flippant. He's not being prideful either here. It's not a careless statement. You know why? Because it's not about what you think. It's about my calling and who called me. I mean, sooner or later, when you stand up for Jesus Christ, people aren't going to like it. How can you believe that? How can you believe the doctrines of grace, that God has elected before time people he would save? Well, the Bible says so. I mean, you, gotta, I mean, you know this. When we talk about the doctrines of grace, we've got a lot of people mad at us sometimes. Wait a minute, that's not my God. Well, uh, my God knows everything. Your God is dependent upon you making a choice. I think my Bible says God knows us, right? So we find ourselves sometimes at odds with people even over the Bible. But, but here Paul says, look, I'm not being prideful. I just know who I'm serving. I'm serving the Lord who called me into his glorious service for him. So it's not a small, it, it's a small thing for me to, to, to receive criticism from you. So in other words, here's what I think. Let me sum this up. He, he looks at it as a small thing that you examine me when my faithfulness and my commitment is to the master. That's who will reward me or not. Notice this little phrase, he says, or by any human court. Now that's an interesting phrase. All the translations translate uh, himera, uh, which is the word for day, court here. So it really reads this in the Greek. It says, or by any human day. But that doesn't make sense too much. But we know what they're trying to say. They're the day of human, the court of human opinion that day. You know, there's a lot of human opinions today, isn't there? You know, they're really having their, their day, aren't they? When you think about people who are pressing extremely liberal agendas, death of unborn, um, rejection of, of biblical principles from marriage to gender to so forth. I mean, they, they're really having their day right now, aren't they? They have the right guy. Uh, they have the right people. They're empowered. Um, they feel like they're having their day. I love this. Paul says, I'm not concerned about your day. I'm concerned about another day. The day when the king of kings shows up. When the king of kings sets all things right and rewards his servants. The servants of his house who were living according to his manual because they loved him. Because he saved them from their sins and gave them eternal life with him. I'm concerned about that day. And so for Paul to say this, he says, I care very little about your human court day, your day in court. I very, very little about your human opinions here. It is no comparison to the day when the king of kings shows up and says, well done, my faithful servant. See, that's what Paul's after. He's serving his master, not the world. Now, notice that Paul, once again, has this ecclesiological, ecclesiological, um, excuse me, eschatological look, outlook to things. He's always thinking about end times. He's thinking about the Lord's return. And you see that over and over in here. And so he thinks what the Corinth church is doing, they're caught up in this, this present problems, their present thinking of what they think of him in these other situations as just foolishness. Instead, he sees himself as blameless before God. 
Now, if you find yourself in a difficult situation and you've had to stand up at Thanksgiving against some issue that's in your family, I'm trying to just set the scene here, you have to remember, and this is what Paul's doing, you have to remember that you prayed, you, you handled the word right, you, you, you were humble in the way you approached that situation. You were hoping it actually wasn't going to come up, but it did. And, and you humbly handled that. You have to remember where God has placed you. He looks at you as holy, blameless, and above reproach. And so if, when you understand that, that God has made me right, not based on my own terms or what I have accomplished, God loves me and has given me this perfect standing, now I can stand, I can do it humbly and loving and try to, try to my best tell them what the Bible says about that particular situation. But in the end, they may disagree with me, they may not like me, but my standing with God has not changed. So you've got to hold to that. And brothers and sisters, we're heading into some bumpy waters. Are you going to stand with your elders? Because we're not budging. <laughs> we're going to be loving, and we're going to share the gospel, but we're going, up. Oh, this is what the Bible says. Marriage, gender, life. This is what God says. Will you stand with us? And see, that's what kept Paul going. Notice he goes on to say this in verse 3 in response. Paul says, in fact, I don't even examine myself. I, I love this. Because of my standing, because of my calling, all the human examination of the Corinthians or anyone else means very little. And, and this is not prideful, but you're able to say, God, I hurt for my family members who reject the truth of the gospel, but thank you. Thank you that I could stand and I could put my faith in you. So Paul says, I'm a steward whether you like it or not. I'm a Christian whether the world likes it or not. I want them to know what I believe. I pray God saves them. I want to be kind and receptive and, and have a conversation with them. But I'm a Christian no matter what they do to me. See, that's what Paul's doing. And see, this breaks down this judgmental world. Folks, we cannot get into arguments with the world. They're never going to believe what we believe outside of the work of the Holy Spirit transforming their life. Paul says, I don't even examine myself. I don't even examine myself. This statement is amazing. It's neither prideful nor irresponsible because his service as a steward is, stewardship is to another. So even if Paul thought he was doing a pretty good job in his performance, he says that's irrelevant. It's the master who's going to tell me what I've done. The master is either going to give me precious stones, silver and gold, or it's all going to go up in smoke through the refiner's fire. See, he, that's what he's doing. It's not prideful. And there's times maybe somebody um, judges something you've done, but your heart was right, you did it according to the Bible. You might have to say, man, brother, I appreciate that. But God, God will have to share my testimony someday. I did that out of my right heart. And because God has saved me. See, Paul's all about running a race, isn't he? He's, he's in his lane. This is what God's called me to do. I know you're trying to push me off of my lane. I know you're trying to push me to be relevant and be like these, these philosophers of the day, but I'm in a lane and I'm staying in this lane because this is what God called me to do. I want to glorify him. Third, and I've got to pick up the pace here, our confidence is not in ourselves, but in the one who holds the final verdict. <laughs> I love that thought. Our confidence is not in ourselves, but in the one who holds the final verdict. Look at verse 4. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. 
Well, notice this, uh, that Paul even relinquishes his, his own personal evaluation. Uh, in a sense, he says, I, I don't know of any personal or selfish hidden agendas in my role or my responsibility, but God does if, if it's there. Uh, it, and in fact, he's probably saying, my conscience is clear as far as I can tell. Isn't that what verse 4 says? Uh, as far as I can tell, my conscience is clear. I, I, I feel like I'm honoring God and what I'm doing. I'm staying in my lane. I'm, I'm preaching the gospel. I'm doing what God has called. I think that's quite a statement. Can you say that? Can you say your conscience is clear? But probably the more difficult thing <laughs> to say is I don't have confidence in myself, though. Paul was a big advocate of saying things like this, Philippians 3, 3, put no confidence in the flesh. And what he's really saying is he's, he's very quick to say, I don't, though I don't see anything in myself, who am I? And I think he's quick to examine his own statement in his own personal evaluation of his stewardship. He's examining that right now. He's going, well, wait a minute, though. No. Consciously, I think I'm clear, but whoa. Wait a minute, let me examine that. And he makes a great statement. He says this, But the one who examines me, anacrino, investigates me, is the Lord. It is the Lord who will examine me, Paul is saying. It is the Lord who will judge with his refiner fires the works of my heart. Will they come out as precious stones or will they be very smoky in heaven that day? So in reality, Paul is saying that it is the Lord who chose me, called me, made me a servant, made me his a steward of this glorious gospel. And it is only the Lord who examines me. See, they're pushing in. We don't like you. We don't like what you look like. We don't like what you talk about. And Paul had to come back and say, my standing's with God. Boy, we're going to get this someday. And you may get this as a fam from a family member or somebody close to you. And you have to trust that there is a final judge. There's a master of the house whom we're accountable to. And there's one who rightly examines and hands down verdicts, and he gives it to faithful, trustworthy stewards. Are you faithful? Are you trustworthy? Are you still judging other people? See, it's easy to judge other people. It helps justify your sin or your position that you're in. It's easy to look across the fence and, and, and blast that person, and yet in the same way do the same things. See, hypocriticalness is, is a problem, isn't it? And Paul says, look, I'm, I'm only here to stand before my master someday and be found faithful. That's what I want. And he's trying to bring the church to that. Paul was accustomed to this. Look at second, look, first, uh, first Thessalonians chapter 2. Turn with me there quickly. I don't have time to read this whole passage, so let me read just a few verses here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. <laughs> this wasn't just empty. But, verse 2, after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, yeah, they were beaten and thrown in prison. As you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. Then he says this, a mud amid much opposition. Now that wasn't just Romans, because the Romans figured out they illegally put him in prison, illegally bit, uh, beat him without a trial, and they said, get out of here, We're, we don't want to be in trouble for this. He's talking about um, opposition from religious leaders. When you study the book of Acts, he goes through towns, right? 
He goes through towns, and there he's stoned and chased and run out and, and pursued by these, these religious zealots and from one town to another. And then he gets to the end of it. What's he do? He goes, hey, let's go back. <laughs> go, go back. You can imagine John Mark at that point going, yeah, I'm not going back. No, we're going to go back. See, he was always amid great oppositions because he preached the truth. If you're going to hold to the truth, brother and sister, you're going to have opposition. And you better figure out if you're a servant and a steward or just somebody playing a game because you're not going to make it. Because in the end, your morals will not hold you. Your morals will fail you. Your love for the Lord Jesus Christ and your servanthood to him keeps you running when other people don't. Do you understand that? And so Paul was under much of this. Verse 3, For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God, to hear some words again, to be entrusted with the gospel. Same language. So we speak. <laughs> I love that. God entrusted with the gospel. That's what we speak. We don't say, oh, here's what you're supposed to do. Well, you know, that's not going to go over well this day. You know, God, they're, you know, they're really not into this gender thing anymore. No. He entrusted us with his word. Teach it. It may get you thrown in jail. It may get your, your tax ID taken away someday, as many of our brothers around the world have suffered. It, it may bring persecution, but teach it. I love this. I've entrusted you with the gospel, so we speak. Not as men-pleasers, but God who examines our hearts. And then he goes on, look, we didn't come with flattering speech. And he goes right back to that. This is our goal. We're stewards, we're servants, we're doing what the master told us to do. We love this about the apostle Paul. These are bold statements. And so he says, I don't examine myself, but there is one who examines me. Look at verse uh, 5 in our fourth thought. Live in light of the return of Christ and let God distribute judgment and praise. Live in light of the return of Christ and let God distribute judgment and praise. Verse 5 says this, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light, listen to this, the, hidden, the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him. Look at this. From God. Here he begins with this premature verdict that they keep handing down. He says, you can notice the passion in this. It's emphatic in the Greek, but you can see the passion. Therefore, do not go passing judgment before time. Do not pre premature, bring a premature verdict on people. Wait for God. Wait for him. Be faithful. Be a steward. He's not saying that judgment doesn't have a place. We know that, right? We're to, we're, we don't judge the world, but we, we judge the church, right? And listen, God's word's instructing us to be careful of our examination, right? Because if we don't keep our judgments in the perspective of the return of Christ, we'll make wrong judgments. So there are things, brothers and sisters, that our goal is to maybe not come so hard down on somebody, but to help them go, hey, let me, let me just give you a thought. Is this the way you want to be living when Jesus shows up? Isn't that a way of maybe we could come to somebody who's going through a struggle? Who, who claims to be a Christian? Do you want this lifestyle when your Savior shows up? See, that, there's that eschatological look at things, right? 
Paul's always saying, hey, Corinth, he's coming. Are you ready for him? Or are you just there muddling around because you don't like the government? <laughs> or me, Paul says. Notice he uses this term before the time. He's keeping it in context here, right, isn't he? Paul's referring to the return of his master. Stop, stop passing premature verdict, judgment before the time, before the master shows up. He's the one who's going to grant the rewards. In other words, do you want to make that judgment, hand down that verdict, before the master comes and rewards each person perfectly? This is the regards to his return. And then he makes a statement, and this is what we'll finish with. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the, hidden, the things hidden in the darkness, and look at this, and disclose the motive of men's hearts. Now, maybe you would think Paul could just end that passage. He could have said, stop judging. Stop premature judging. But the Spirit pushes him beyond to come to the sovereignty of God, right? Here he says, and the sovereignty of God has the ability to bring light to things that are hidden in darkness. You know, there's things that we may have to deal with in this life, but we may never get them resolved, but God's going to resolve them. Paul said in, in 1, Corinthians, 1 Timothy 6, he said that God dwells in inapproachable light. His glorious light will shine on things and expose things hidden. I've said it many times from this pulpit, we don't have to go correct all this, God's going to finish it. Stand for what's right in your own life, personally, with your own family. God's going to solve this stuff, brothers and sisters. His light's going to come, and those things that they think are so hidden, oh, nobody knows, it's down here, nobody knows, God knows, and he's going to expose it. Nobody gets away with nothing. And then this statement about the heart, oh, my goodness, isn't this amazing? Look at that phrase. He discloses the motives of men's heart. Listen, if you try to expose the motive of your spouse's heart, you're in trouble. Gene and I have done this through the years, and then we get, we get in this conversation. You know, honey, you're, you're, you're saying, you're trying to say that my, you know my motives. You're right. Only God knows motives. See, God can look at the motives. You, know, you want to work on your marriage? Stop judging motives. God knows motives. And he's going to expose those things, right? Out of, the, out of the mouth is what comes out of the heart, right? And, and those motives eventually do come out. We can see them out, out of our voice and what we say and what we do. But God does that. And there's nothing hidden from his sight. All those motives will be exposed. God says this, that the motives of men's hearts, he'll disclose them. Can you imagine judgment day and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and all the wicked motives that were in your heart are put on display as he judges you for eternity? Praise God, there's no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ, right? He puts that on display. And this is what God's always after, the heart, right? He told Samuel, look, quit looking on the outside. You're looking for the tall guy. I got a short, red-headed guy out in the field. David, right? First Chronicles 28, 9. Solomon, Dave speak, David speaking to his son Solomon. He says, know the God of your father. Serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches the hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. It sounds just like Hebrews chapter 4, and that's the word of God. David says, search me and know my heart. The word of God fillets us in front of him, right? It goes down to the joint and marrow, even the intention of our hearts. This is the idea. 
And so Paul says, look, wait. Jesus is coming. Let the world do what they're going to do because the Lord is going to expose them for who they are. You be found faithful. That's good news, isn't it? I don't got to fix that crazy world. I I got the hope for them. I got the message they need. I got the only hope. And I can share that, but I don't have to fix that. I don't have to fix administration. I don't have to fix all that stuff. I need to be found faithful. Amen? Are you willing to be a church that's found faithful? When the Afghan type, Afghan type of events hit us, will you want to be rescued out? Or you want to stay and see God work? Hey, good reminders here. Father, thank you for this time together in the Word. Time goes by when we talk about your greatness and your glory. But Lord, thank you that you've made us stewards, servants. We don't have to be in judgment of one another. We've got enough to do, Lord. You've called us to be moms and dads, husbands and wives, singles and children and, and, and ministers of the gospel. Lord, you've called us to share our lives with the world and share what we believe with them, Lord. We have so much to do, and yet we find ourselves always judging other people. Lord, forgive us of that. It shows in a heart of unforgiveness, Lord. It shows that we have not lived in light of your gospel, at least for that time, Lord. Help us not be judgmental, God. Help us to be those who forgive. Help us to be tender and kind-hearted, forgiving as God in Christ forgave us. Oh, that's gospel-saturated. That's a good steward of what God has entrusted us. So, Lord, give us strength. We need your help in this. These times are getting difficult. Lord, help us stay in our row, hoe away. Help us be a temple of God that's holy and set apart for you. Help us to be the household, the servant, the steward that takes care of the things of God well. And when you come back, may we be found faithful and trustworthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.